Nearly everywhere we look around the world, wildlife is disappearing. We know that many species play important roles in their environments, and that ecosystems wouldn't function well without them. But it can be difficult to know how exactly the natural world would change if any particular type of wildlife no longer existed. In this episode, we visit Guam in the Mariana Islands, where researchers are getting a glimpse of what happens when one particular group of animals is eliminated, thanks to the introduction of some especially voracious predators. These snakes will eat anything. They'll eat roadkill. I've even seen them eat meat off of a, a pig that was on a spit, on a what? fire that was actually oh burning. They're raiding, and they raiding people's barbecues? <laughs> exactly. That's it's crazy. incredible. They'll eat anything. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and my guest is ecologist Huldra Rogers, who is studying forests on Guam, where invasive snakes have eliminated nearly all of the island's native birds. It's hard to imagine a world without birds. Birds are everywhere. No matter where you live, step outside and chances are that you'll see some birds. You'll probably hear them too. Bird watching is one of the most popular hobbies worldwide. But in addition to providing millions of people with recreational opportunities, birds also play important roles in their ecosystems. The thing is, Birds are so common in most places that it's hard for us to get a sense for just how essential birds really are, and how much we would miss them if they somehow disappeared. Dr. Haldra Rogers is an ecologist whose work is helping reveal the importance of birds. Hi, Haldra. Welcome to Wild World. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So let's take a walk through a forest on one of the islands in the Northern Mariana Islands the island of Saipan. What would we be experiencing just walking through this forest together? What would we see, smell, and hear? Well, the forest is built on the, grows on this limestone karst. So if you imagine what it's like being underwater in a coral reef, and there's all sorts of different reef shapes, and then you take that coral reef and expose it, turn it into rock, so it's above ground, it's now exposed as rock, this is over geological time, and then you grow a forest on top of it. That's essentially what the forest is like. It's pretty amazing, because um, you have trees growing out of just very sharp, rugged rock. And so it's a little difficult to walk around in, and you often tear your pants and shoes and whatever else <laughs> happens to hit the, the karst. And there are about 12 native forest birds, 12 to 15, somewhere in there, that you might hear in the forest. So there's the chicharica, which is the rufous fantail, and it likes to, um, it's called the follow me bird because as legends go, when you hear it, it kind of entices you to go chase after it and, <laughs> and it will get you to go further and further and further into the forest until you get lost. And so parents would tell their kids not to follow the chicharica. Huh. So you have, see the chicharica and you have the noosa, the bridled white-eye, that is a small passerine that loves to come down and, and say hi as you're walking through the forest. The toto, or the mariana fruit dove, just beautiful colors. Don't see it very often, but you'll hear it. It has a really wonderful call that sounds a little bit like it's laughing in the middle of it. 
So you'll hear the, the tote probably. So you'll see and hear all of these birds and be in a lush tropical rainforest. Some of the more important trees are the um, nunu fig species or big ficus species. And these have all sorts of different kind of like stilts. They're you know called strangler figs because they just grow down and grow all these different little stilts or trunks all over in the in the forest. And they're really important culturally and important for all of the birds. So there, you'll see quite a few of the fig trees as well. It sounds like a, just an absolutely beautiful place. Do you remember your first time walking through a forest on, on Saipan? That's a great question. I, I think the first time I walked through a nice native limestone forest on Saipan was at this area, probably in this area we call Forbidden Island, which is the mm. Forbidden Island Conservation Area, which is near this little island, but this is on the mainland part, not on the island. So the first time I walked through this native limestone forest, yeah, you have to, walking is not really the right term to use. It's more like <laughs> crawling slash uh, <laughs> scrambling around and over things but yeah I, I remember thinking it was beautiful and yeah I, I loved it so let's do some island hopping so let's suppose that we make our way a little to the south and visit the island of rota and go for a walk there would it be very different from saipan in the native limestone forest it would probably be pretty similar although if you were there in the early morning hours and the late evening hours you would also see the mariana fruit bat or fanihi these are flying foxes, so massive bats that are nocturnal, so they're out foraging all night and then coming back to roost in the trees during the daytime. And their kind of last main stronghold in the southern Mariana Islands is in on the island of Rhoda. But otherwise, it would probably be pretty similar. So let's continue island hopping and, and head a little further south to the island of Guam. What's it like walking through a forest on Guam? This is very, very different. So it's still the same beautiful limestone karst with trees growing straight out of the rocks, but there, you won't hear any birdsong in the forest on Guam, and you probably will run into a lot of spider webs. Oof. So you'll be walking along on the trails, and first of all, nobody wants to be the first person in line if you're hiking on a trail because you're the one that's going to get all the spider webs in your face. Hmm. And so usually if you're you know, hiking in the, uh, on trails, you pick up a stick and call the spider stick and knock down all the spider webs as you walk along. But yeah, so working there is just kind of, kind of eerie. If you spend a whole day doing, field, you know, doing research in the field and you're out there, especially if you're out there by yourself, and there's just not other sounds around, it gets pretty lonely. Wow, it does sound kind of a little bit creepy. I mean, we're so accustomed to hearing birds when we're walking in any forest. And it sounds like in these forests... In particular, like there are you know, a lot of birds on, on the nearby islands. So what's going on on Guam? Well, in the mid-1940s, likely aboard a ship that was bringing a bunch of military cargo back from the Admiralty Islands, which are kind of near Papua New Guinea, there's probably either a pregnant female brown tree snake or a male and a female. And they kind of hitched a ride aboard one of these ships and got off when the ship got to Arodi Peninsula on Guam and made a new home. And so from those, you know, one or a few snakes, we now have probably over one to two million snakes on the island. Oh, my gosh. And the snakes, it's kind of interesting because when they first got there in the mid-1940s, no one knew they were there. So probably around the mid-1950s, people started seeing them. Their population had grown enough that people were seeing them in around where they lived. 
But they thought that maybe they were just helping to control the rats. And they were thought they were identified as the Philippine rat snake for the, you know, until about the mid 1970s when someone recognized that they actually weren't the Philippine rat snake. It was the brown tree snake. And the snake is native to the to the northern and eastern coasts of Australia, New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and eastern Indonesia. Uh, it, hadn't, it had never been in the island of Guam. And actually, there aren't any native snakes to the island of Guam. So it was a novel introduction. There's a tiny blind snake that is present in the soil, but it's uh, other than that, there are no snakes at all. So did the brown tree snakes get introduced to Guam, like, from the military presence that was there during World War II? Because the, I know the, the U.S. had a, a strong military presence there starting in, in World War II, right? Yeah, the military presence on Guam started in the late 1800s. I think in 1898 is when Guam became a U.S. territory after the Spanish-American War. And so there was a military presence prior to World War II, hmm. but then that presence was built up quite a bit during World War II. The Japanese actually had control for a number of years, and then the U.S. took it back. So Guam was a center for of military activity during World War II, and then after World War II, it was kind of like a home base to help regroup. And then there's been a constant military presence since then on the island. So I would say, you know, in part because it's such an important military base, that's why they were bringing cargo back from other islands. And this is after the war, so it wasn't in the kind of during the acts of war. So somehow the snake manages to arrive to Guam, and there weren't any snakes that were were native to Guam, with the exception of the one small one that lives underground that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So I guess the birds that are native to Guam just had no prior experience with with you know predatory snakes. Is is that right? Exactly. Um, these are birds that evolved on oceanic islands where there really weren't any native predators. The rats, uh, rats were introduced at some point in the you know previous couple thousand years. So there had been rats around, which are predators, but they've been able to coexist with rats. The birds that were, remained in Guam had been able to coexist with rats for at least that period of time. So otherwise, they didn't have any other native predators. And especially not a nocturnal tree-climbing snake that can eat, has a, a big appetite for birds. So brown tree snakes love to eat birds, basically, and that was bad yes. news for the for the native birds of Guam. Yeah. But I, but I would actually say, though, it took scientists a long time to figure that out um, hmm. because, so as I was saying earlier, they had misidentified it as a Philippine rat snake for the first, you know, 20 to 30 years of the time the snake was on Guam. And then they realized it was actually the brown tree snake. But even then, it wasn't seen as a major problem. They thought maybe it was just controlling rats, which were a problem. And meanwhile, biologists at the local government of Guam, Department of Aquatic and Wildlife Resources, had been out counting birds, as they do. You survey the birds, figure out, you know, what the bird population is, how the bird population is doing. And to survey these birds, they would drive a, a route around the southern part of the island and stop every so, you know, every so far often <laughs> along this route and count all of the birds. And they did this once or twice a year. It's a pretty regular way of surveying. And they'd also drive over on the northern part of the island. And in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, they realized that the birds are starting to decline. It went from like normal bird counts to just dropping so that within a few years, they had, were counting zero birds at some of these stops. And I think by mid-1970 or by 1975, 
they just stopped doing the southern survey because there were no birds left to count in the southern part of the island. And then in the northern part of the island, they started seeing birds decline, um, especially in the kind of middle and then as you got further up to the north. So they knew birds were declining, but it took until the mid-1980s to figure out that the snake is what was responsible for that. Wow. It's just crazy to imagine, you know, there not being any birds, but these snakes are just such effective predators. I mean, how did people first figure out that it was, in fact, the snake? The first clues probably came from people who were raising chickens and realized that the snakes were eating their baby chicks and their eggs. And they knew that the snakes were a problem. In the scientific community, there is a PhD student, Julie Savage, who came out to Guam to try to figure out what was causing the loss of birds. And she tested five major hypotheses, one being invasive predators like the snake, another being disease, because in Hawaii, avian malaria was already known to be a big problem. And so it was thought that maybe another disease like that is what was happening, what was hurting the birds in Guam. I thought, you know, habitat loss is a constant problem in many places, and there had been a big influx of people and population growth, and so potentially habitat loss was responsible. Overhunting is also, as population grows, there can be stronger hunting pressure, so that was a, a possibility. And then pesticides like DDT, which also had been in the news in the previous couple of decades, were seen as a real um, possibility. So she set out a bunch of experiments to test those five hypotheses for bird decline, and found that for hunting and for habitat loss, the patterns of where birds are declining didn't match where that people were hunting or where habitat was being lost. So those didn't seem to be that uh, likely. And then for pesticides, they tested the tissue of some of the songbirds that were left, as well as looked at the soil to see how much pesticide residue there might be. and didn't find levels that would kill a songbird, so it seemed like it wasn't pesticides. For disease, they took birds that had not been exposed to any disease. They'd been raised in a lab. They were completely disease-free. They would put them in a cage and put them out in the jungle and see if they caught any diseases. And the birds didn't catch any diseases, but several of them did get eaten by snakes. And mm. that was one of the early key, early clues to the fact that snakes might be the cause of bird loss. And they also put out traps and caught snakes and found birds inside of them and, yeah, realized that snakes were probably the major cause. Wow. So at this point, it became pretty clear, it sounds like, that, that the disappearing birds were due to the arrival of the brown tree snake. Yes. Uh, so I would say it was clear to the initial to the biologists initially, but when Julie presented that at a scientific conference, some of the leading ornithologists and herpetologists in the field didn't believe her. Mm. They actively stood up and <laughs> told her that she was wrong and there's no way a snake could do that to birds so that could cause the complete loss of birds. So it took a little while for the scientific community to come around and recognize that this invasive snake was the cause of bird decline. Oh, that's interesting. So was there new evidence that convinced people or it just took time for people to, to accept the evidence that had already been collected? I think probably it was some combination of those two because you know, that research then kicked off a lot of management where they worked to try to capture snakes and found more you know, birds and snakes and recognized just the magnitude of the snake population. And then also probably some amount of people just coming around to the idea. It, you know, it's a, something they didn't think was possible, and it took a little while to, to, to consider the fact that snakes could, be, could have that impact. 
And it didn't get better, did it? I mean, it just the snakes just kept eating birds. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, it's crazy. At what point was it clear that the snakes had basically eaten most or all of the native birds on Guam? Sadly, the point at which it became clear that snakes were the problem, you know, early to mid 1980s. By the time they recognized that snakes were the major problem, there were just a few bird species left in the northern tip of the island, and they did everything they could to capture the last of those individuals and bring them into captivity. So this was the Guam rail, the um, Micronesian kingfisher, and, and the Marana crow were the three main ones that, that were left at that point. Most of the other birds had already disappeared, or they weren't able to get them kind of established in captivity. And so, unfortunately, kind of by the time they figured it out, it was almost too late. Thankfully, though, they were able to get the cocoa, the guam rail, um, as well as the seahick, which is the Micronesian kingfisher, into captivity. And they have developed captive breeding programs. And we still have these two species now. They're, these two species still exist now because of captive breeding programs in, in zoos, uh, mostly around the U.S. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and my guest is ecologist Haldra Rogers. When we come back, we'll hear about Haldra's work on the consequences of bird loss on the island of Guam. If you want to see our wild world for yourself, one of the best ways is with Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. They've been exploring the most amazing places on the planet for more than 50 years. They have the most advanced fleet of expedition ships in the world, and their trips create unprecedented opportunities for guests. Visit expeditions.com to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Welcome back. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm speaking with Haldra Rogers, who's studying forests on Guam, where invasive snakes have eliminated nearly all of the island's native birds. So how many species of birds used to exist on Guam before the brown tree snake arrived? In the forest, there were about 12 native bird species, and now there are only two remaining of those original 12 species in the forest. There are a few of those species, like I said, that are in captivity, both in mainland zoos as well as at Guam's Department of Aquatic and Wildlife Resources. And then several of the species still have populations on other islands nearby, so they're not totally extinct. However, there are several species that went totally extinct, and you know we won't be able to bring them back without some major innovation in, in de-extinction. Right, like people are talking about doing with mammoths or something, right? Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a yeah. technology so like the, we don't quite have yet, right? <laughs> exactly. So something like the Guam broadbill, that one is you know completely extinct, and it would take bringing it back from extinction in order to uh, get it in the wild again. But the tree snakes are still out there, right? I mean, even if you could bring them back now, would they survive on Guam? 
Probably not. So it's a bit of a misconception that there are no birds on Guam, because there actually are birds left on Guam. In the urban areas, there are non-native species like the Asian tree sparrow and the Franklin, and there's a few other non-native species. There are also native species like the island tern and uh, the bittern, yellow bittern. Um, so there are some bird species in the more open areas or urban areas where snake densities are likely lower. But in the forest, it is completely silent. And the only species that you might hear every once in a while is the Micronesian starling. And that's one of the two native forest birds that still exists. You also might see the Mariana swiftlet if you're near one of its caves down south in southern Guam, that it, where it still persists. And other than that, all of the other native forest birds are gone. It's just amazing to imagine what this island was like and and what it's like now. I mean, I haven't been there yet. I'd love to come visit sometime, but it's uh, it's it's just so disturbing to imagine a forest without any native birds. Yeah, it it definitely is a pretty stark uh, contrast to the other islands in a pretty kind of sad situation. About maybe six years ago, though, I think there started to be a transformation in how we thought about it, and it, both in my own research and in how the broader com conservation community pictured it. And this, I think, in part was due to some development of methods for controlling the snake. Um, so, you know, before, you know, through the 90s and the early part of the 2000s, the main methods for controlling the snake were putting out traps that were baited with live mice. The mice are in this little container, so the snakes can't get to them, but they attract the snakes into the traps and then you know, go around and, and collect all the snakes from the traps. Or just manually, you know, visually searching for snakes, which is labor-intensive but pretty effective at capturing snakes that are small and large. Th those are the main two tools that were used through the early part of research on brown tree snakes. And... Around, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been really great development of a new tool, which is using acetaminophen. And the dose is about the amount in the children's Tylenol that is needed uh, to kill an average brown tree snake. Hmm. And so knowing that, you know, Tylenol can kill snakes, the next step is figure out how you might deliver Tylenol to snakes. Thankfully on Guam, these snakes will eat anything. They'll eat roadkill. They'll eat... I've even seen them eat uh, meat off of a, uh, a pig that was on a spit, on a lot, like what? a fire that was actually oh gosh. burning. They're raiding, and they raiding people's barbecues and eating their... <laughs> exactly. That's it's crazy. incredible. They'll eat anything. Wow. So if you take a acetaminophen and put it on a dead mouse, and then, um, you know, then the snake will eat it. But you actually only want the snake to eat it. You don't want other species to eat it. And so ideally, it will land somewhere up in the trees instead of being placed on the ground. So the next step was to figure out how to deliver these acetaminophen baits to snakes. And um, for this, they developed this uh, tool that shoots them out from a helicopter. So it's like this uh, delivery system that just shoots out mice that have uh, little almost parachutes like uh, almost parachute like flyer or streamers on them that catch on the trees and then land there and open up for the snakes to eat them. So this tool is actually really effective at controlling medium and large snakes that will eat these dead mice. And so with that and being able to use a, t a helicopter or even a fixed wing plane down the road means that you can you could treat a much larger area and there and therefore actually control snakes in a pretty large landscape level. 
I'm still trying to picture these uh, these parachuting uh, dead mice coming out of uh, uh, of this device. That's <laughs> that's quite a visual. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's one of those things that hit the media. Every once in a while, you'll see a media storm about it as some new bit of research comes out showing that it's effective, because it is such a kind of extreme example. Yeah, so I think the development of this new tool meant that we could move from thinking that Guam was almost a lost cause for reintroducing birds to figuring out how we might actually get birds back in the landscape. So it's been a really exciting period of time to be involved because we do have, you know, an expectation that we might be able to control snakes either to a really low level or actually eradicate them inside fenced areas and then reintroduce birds in those areas and actually get some of these native bird species back on the landscape. I certainly hope those efforts are successful. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, th- I think there's a vision that maybe in the next 10 years we'll have sea hick flying again in the wilds on Guam. That'd be great. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what first brought you to Guam? I came a couple years after I finished college. I took a job uh, with the U.S. Geological Survey as the first brown tree snake rapid response team coordinator. Hmm. And that role was essentially just developing this team of snake searchers that would respond anytime someone somewhere else, usually in the Pacific, would call and say, hey, we have a snake on our island. (laughs) I would take my team of trained searchers and we'd go to that island and set up a search to see if if we could catch that one snake and if there's a population of snakes present. So the snakes are being introduced or like making their way to other islands as well. It's not just Guam. They have caught snakes on Saipan, Rhoda, Tinian, Hawaii, Texas, I think there was even one. Many of those are dead because one of the the common ways they'll escape Guam is they'll crawl up into the landing craft, um, the landing gear of the uh, airplane. And then often when it's in the air, it gets way too cold and it dies. So it doesn't actually make the trip. But some of them have been alive. And that's where it's pretty concerning. So far, we don't think there's a population on any island outside of Guam, with the single exception of Cocos Island, a really small islet um, just off the southern part of Guam. So uh, I guess now people know what they're looking for and might be more likely to intercept one of these tree snakes. And it sounds like that was part of the effort that you were involved in. Yeah, we set up these kind of outreach programs so that people knew whenever they saw a snake, they were supposed to call a number and report it. And then we set up an interview system so that we could interview someone and figure out what it was they actually saw. For example, in Hawaii, sometimes, you know, maybe it could be the brown tree snake, but also people will bring uh, pets like boas uh, there. And then as the boa gets too big to keep in their home, they'll release it. And that's not legal, but it often does happen. And so they've caught quite a few other species of snakes in Hawaii. And so part of the reason for the interview is to figure out what species we're dealing with before we start looking. So what was that job like? I mean, it sounds like a a very interesting and exciting job to have just, you know, a couple of years out of college. It was wonderful. It was some of the best years of my life, for sure. I mean, well, first of all, it was a big project to set up. No one had set up this team before. And so I got out there and they're like, go for it. <laughs> we don't know what you're, what to do. You figure it out. And so it was fun to have that as a project to just say, okay, I have this this goal of setting up this team and trying to figure out if there are snakes in other islands. Let's see how we can make this happen. And then one of the, my favorite parts is that the job had a lot of travel to other islands and just talking with people to figure out 
what they're currently doing, how we can you know, provide resources that might help them respond to snake sightings and make sure that everyone on the island knows what to do when they see a snake. Um, so it was a lot of just networking and, and conversation with folks across other Pacific islands. There's also a lot of time spent searching for snakes. And on Guam, that's, you know, that's pretty fun. You can walk along and look for snakes and you'll see one usually every maybe half hour, hour on a good night. On a bad night, you might not see any. But, you know, you'll find snakes here and there. On other islands for snake responses, we never found a snake in any of the responses I did, um, which is good. It means there's not large populations. But it also means you spend hours upon hours staring at forests, slowly scanning, looking for snakes and never finding any. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about the forest while I was out there uh, looking for snakes. I think it's safe to say that your sense of what a good night is and a bad night is might be different than uh, than some <laughs> other people's. <laughs> very, very I, I, I very suppose true. it's true that you uh, are not someone who you know has a fear of snakes. It's a common fear, right? Did you always? Yeah. Did you? Did you uh, were you always comfortable with snakes? As a little kid, I was very comfortable with snakes. I thought garter snakes my best friend, and then somewhere on. I think I was about five. I had a garter snake bite me, and I was so taken aback. I was like, wait a second. Like, I thought we were friends. I didn't know that you would bite. You like, felt betrayed. So I just remember, <laughs> yeah, exactly, betrayed by my best friend. And um, But I have, uh, you know, I have always liked snakes. I would say that I still do have a healthy fear of snakes that I know might hurt me. So I don't feel comfortable around any of the poisonous snakes, un unlike a lot of my herpetologist friends who feel um, quite comfortable. Right, right. So at what point did you start thinking that, you know, this is something you might like to kind of study a, a little bit more? Like, you know, at some point, I guess you became interested in uh, going to graduate school and, and, you know, doing a deeper dive into this system. How did that happen? When I was there, I was there for three years as the Brown Tree Snake Rapid Response Team Coordinator. And at some point, I realized that as much as I loved the job, it didn't I had gotten a lot out of it in those three years, and I didn't see a lot more growth potential in that position, and that I wanted a new challenge. And so I applied to graduate school, actually with the thoughts of working in a different system. I was like, okay, you know, I love my time in Guam. I'm going to, but next is a, you know, adventure in Bolivia or something like that. And so I got to grad school, and I was thinking about what research I wanted to do, and I just kept coming back to the fact that the birds had all disappeared in the forests on Guam, and there's a lot of research trying to understand more about the biology of the snake or more about the direct impacts of the bird of the snake on lizards or birds. But no one was really trying to understand the the cascading effects, the ecology of the bird loss on the forest. And it just kind of kept coming back. It's this really good research question, and I was in a position to answer it because I knew a lot of folks across these islands. I loved, you know, being in the Marianas. And, yeah, and the fact that you have the island of Guam that doesn't have these native forest birds, but you have three other islands nearby that do have all of the same birds and the same plant species. Not all of the same birds, but most of the same bird community and the same plant community provides this great accidental experiment to be able to test the role of birds on, on a scale that we really can't test it on anywhere else. So I decided to study the impact of bird loss with my PhD. And so now this has turned into your, your career focus. I mean, this is what your your research has has taken advantage, as you said, of this kind of this accident of introduction where you've got 
a brown tree snake on one island that has basically eliminated the native birds, and then other islands that still have their native birds. And that sets up some interesting comparisons. You're listening to Wild World. Coming up, we'll hear about what Haldra's research is revealing about the importance of birds for Guam's native forests. The Rice University Traveling Owls program offers exciting intellectual itineraries to destinations around the globe. Traveling Owls trips serve as a catalyst for lifelong learning and strengthen bonds between Rice University alumni and friends. You don't have to be a Rice alum to participate in Traveling Owls programs. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls to see a list of upcoming trips. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and my guest is Haldra Rogers, an ecologist whose research compares forests on Guam, where native birds have been eliminated, to nearby islands that still have birds. So what are some of the things that you've learned about the consequences of not having birds? When I first started looking into this, I immediately thought that losing the top predators, the birds that ate arthropods, mostly arthropods, a few kind of invertebrate or like uh, lizards, that losing those top predators would then mean that you have changes in arthropods, which would affect plants in this classic trophic cascade. So I figured that was going to be the biggest impact that we'd find. And my PhD advisor said, oh, you should also look at dispersal because all those birds are seed dispersers. And I was like, hmm, okay, I hadn't really thought about that, but sure, I'll look at that. And then I also recognize that birds are, there's a couple of the species that are pollinators, but that most of them weren't pollinators. So that it seemed like the food web changes and the, and the seed dispersal changes might be the biggest. So that's why I first started tackling or understanding how food webs had changed on Guam compared to Saipan, Tinian, and Rhoda and how seed dispersal had changed. And what I found is that with food webs, as I said in the beginning, there's a lot more spiders on Guam than there are in other islands. And that's probably because we've lost many of the birds that ate the spiders. And as a result, spider populations have exploded on Guam, especially some of these. There's a couple of species of larger spiders that build really big webs that are seem to be targeted on other islands where birds are present and have no major predators on Guam. But it gets far more complicated after that. So you have more spiders, but then what happens with the rest of the arthropods is seems complicated and plants grow as well, if not better, on Guam compared to other islands. Mm. So we still are trying to figure out what's happening on the food web side of things. Meanwhile, when we think about seed dispersal, the birds are responsible for dispersing the seeds of the majority of tree species in the forest. Fruit bats are also important dispersers, and they have are basically gone from the islands of Guam as well. There's maybe about 50 or so left on the island. So between birds and bats, they disperse about 90% of the tree species in the forest. And that dispersal just doesn't happen anymore. And so the seeds fall directly underneath the parent plant. And that's likely to lead to long-term changes in the forest, in the composition of the forest, as well as the structure of the forest. And so that seems like that's the biggest impact overall. And there's nothing that can take the place of birds as dispersers. Unlike with losing birds as predators, then you can get something like a spider, which then becomes a predator and can control other arthropods. 
But with birds, there's nothing else that's going to disperse the seeds once the birds and bats disappear. Can you talk a little bit about why seed dispersal is important? I mean, you know, what is it about spreading seeds that is so important for for many plants? Yeah, so seed dispersal is important for a few different reasons. The first is these plant species that are dispersed by birds and bats, they tend to have a lot of fruit around them, and that's what's attractive to the birds and bats and also to humans. And so that fruit that is around each of the seeds has to get removed for the seeds to germinate well. And so when you don't have birds or bats eating the seed, eating the fruits and then, you know, passing the seeds, then the seeds are have a much lower likelihood of germination in the beginning. So that's the first reason that dispersal is important. It's just making sure the seeds get out of the out of the flesh of the fruit and then and then they germinate. The second reason is that the seeds need to go to a good spot to germinate. And generally, just falling straight underneath your parent tree is not going to be a good spot because there's already a tree growing right there. So it's not like it's an open piece of real estate for that seed to um, to take over. So when we say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, maybe it should. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it should for a few reasons. It might be that it's going to germinate much better if it can get to an area that has a lot of light, like a tree fall gap. Or maybe it just needs to be away from the parent because there's a lot of mortality in the seeds and seedlings uh, underneath the parent. And you can think about this as like if you are a rodent that really likes to eat apples, you're going to go directly underneath the tree because that's where you're going to find the buffet of apples. Mm -hmm. And if that one apple gets away from the tree, then it has a much higher likelihood of actually germinating and surviving. And then it's also important if, for plants to try to colonize new areas. So if they, you know, are going to expand their range or get into an area that's been cleared, you need dispersers to bring seeds there. There's no other way for them to, to reach those um, new areas. So those are some of the main reasons dispersal is important. And you might think about it as just this kind of engine that keeps the forest running. Like all the time, there's seeds being moved all over the forest. And most of the seeds are probably going to die, the vast majority. But you need them being moved all around because, so that one is in the right place at the right time to take advantage of an opening or uh, in the forest or the right spot to grow. And when you lose dispersal, it kind of just the whole forest grinds to a halt. <laughs> there's not You don't have this kind of process that's, that's moving seeds around so that you have a healthy forest growing from it. So on Guam, these plants that evolved with birds to disperse their seeds no longer have them. So, so what's happening with those seeds? Are they just piling up under the, the plants and, and decaying and dying? I guess we're not seeing the, you know, much regeneration of new, new trees and other plants on Guam? So what we found is that it depends by species. There's some species that, you know, if they don't get dispersed, it's okay. They can still sit around in the as a seed or as a seedling for a long time and wait underneath the tree. And they can grow right next to their parent and it's fine. Like, and there's other species that don't grow very well underneath the tree and they don't sit in the seed bag very long. And we just aren't seeing a whole lot of young seeds or, se or young seedlings of those species. So I think what you get is some winners and losers in the plant community, some that really depend upon dispersal. And those are the ones we're not seeing a whole lot of, of juveniles coming up. And then other ones which, you know, probably benefit from dispersal to get to a new area, but don't need it. And they're doing all right in Guam. And you mentioned pollinators as well. And we often think about insects as pollinators, but some birds are important pollinators too, right? So, uh, so tell me a little bit about the birds that are important pollinators in, uh, in this part of the world. The 
two main species that are thought to be important pollinators are the cardinal honeyeater, Igigi, that pollinates quite a few flowers. And it's a pretty classic, I think, pollinator, uh, has a classic pollinator beak. And then the uh, Nusa, or the bridled white-eye. So those are the two that uh, eat pollen, but they also, dis- or at least the bridled white, also disperses seeds and eats some insects. And both of those are gone from Guam. And so the plants that depend on them for pollinators, are there other species around that can help to pollinate them? There's been one study by another researcher that showed that there's lower seed set, so fewer seeds produced on Guam than on other islands nearby, but there are still they still are setting seed. We've started a project to see whether the loss of pollinators on Guam has led to changes in seed set for uh, about 15 of the forest tree species. So we don't really have an answer on that yet. It does seem like insects are also very important pollinators and uh, so that they're able to take over from birds or and maybe even the bird. It's very possible that insects did most of the work anyway before even though birds are also drinking some of the nectar. So we don't we don't think that there's a lot of specialized plant pollinator relationships where the plant is going to immediately go extinct because it lost its avian pollinator. But we're still figuring that out. And let's talk a little bit more about some of the roles as they play, the birds play as predators. So you mentioned that mm-hmm. spiders are way more common. I mean, how common are we talking about? Like if you compare the number of spiders, if you're on a hiking trail in Guam, how different is it from you know hiking on, on, on Rota or Saipan in terms of spiders? So it depends if you're in the wet season or the dry season, but there is a, either twice as many spiders in Guam or 40 times as many spiders in Guam, oh depending upon the season you're wow. in. And the difference is largely in the larger spiders. And so these two species that we see very commonly on Guam are it's an Argaipia pensa, which is the garden spider that many of you may see somewhere around your houses um, kind of big yellow spider that builds a big orb web, and then Sertophora malacensis, which is the spider that builds what I call a condo-style web. There's just lots of lots of different parts to the web and lots of spiders that live colonially. So those two have become really common on Guam, and they're much less common on other islands. And as a result, you just see so many more spider webs uh, because they're really large. There's still a lot of these really small spiders on across all of four islands, but we think the major difference is in these really big spiders. I mean, I can't even imagine 40 times more spiders. That's crazy. So <laughs> I guess now I understand why yeah. you said you need a stick in front of your face as you walk around the <laughs> island. Wow. Yeah, they're, it's it's noteworthy. Um, And there's some other changes, too, in that the spider webs are from kind of low down all the way up to the top of the canopy on Guam. And on other islands, you don't really see them as much in the high canopy because birds are there. And so they're restricted a little bit more to the lower part of the forest. So it seems like they have a very different ecological role on Guam than they do on other islands. So the birds are eating spiders on the other islands where they still exist. What other kinds Mm -hmm. of, you mentioned arthropods, so like uh, are we talking about insects or what other kinds of, of creatures are we talking about that the birds eat? The Birds eat a variety of different things. So the kingfisher on in the Northern Mariana Islands eats a lot of lizards. And so you'll be in the forest and you'll hear this thwack, thwack, thwack. And it's, you'll look over and see a kingfisher hitting a skink or a gecko against a tree oh, wow. so to kill it. And then it eats it. So they eat a lot of lizards. Otherwise, we're still figuring out exactly which species each of the birds eats. 
we have a project where we are collecting the scat from birds and then using metabarcoding, which you can essentially look at the DNA that's in the scat from a bird and figure out all of the different things that bird is eating. So we have a project trying to figure out exactly which insect species or arthropod species all of the birds are eating. So stay tuned and we can figure it. We can have those answers in a few years. All right. Very cool. Okay. So when you're not doing field work, one of your other real passions is rugby. How long have you been playing rugby? I started playing rugby during college, and I don't think I ever officially, officially retired, but the last time I played a tackle match was probably four years ago, something like that. So, you know, I had a good, uh, I don't know the math on that, (laughs) almost 20 years. And so you've played rugby a lot of places, as I understand it, and that includes Guam, right? Yes, I have played for Guam quite a bit. I first started playing when I was in college in upstate New York. And then when I got out to Guam after college, I wanted to play there as well. And so I went out to rugby practice and realized that they didn't have a women's team. They only had a men's team. So the only way I was going to be able to play on Guam is if I played with the men. So I jumped in and I spent you know three years playing on the men's team and then got enough other women interested and and they also had a lot of uh, kind of touch rugby, which the which women had been playing for a while. So especially a lot of the kids had been playing there for a while, and they grew up and got old enough to be able to play tackle. So in 2005, I think we had our first tackle match on the island. And then 2006 had the first women's tur- where we went to an off-island tournament uh, with a team from Guam. That's awesome. So, I mean, so you really helped get women's rugby started in, in Guam. What was that like? It was really, I mean, at the time, it was just fun. I was like, okay, how do I, you know, I wanted to play men's rugby and I wanted more people to play rugby. And also they were starting it in schools and I wanted to make sure that women's rugby and or girls rugby was started in the schools. And so at the time, I was just excited to have more people playing rugby. Right now, looking back, it's incredible to see because there are many, many girls rugby teams playing on the island. Like every high school has one. They have a really vibrant high school rugby program. And then they have a bunch of girls who are college scholarship players in the States and mainland universities. There are some that have played at kind of national team level for uh, like under 23s and such in the U.S. So it's really cool to see how much it's grown at this point. Uh, super rewarding. Yeah, know. that's amazing. So, okay, so I've never played rugby. It looks like a really tough sport. What is it that you love about rugby? I mean, it's intense and tough, and you just have to be on the whole time. And I don't I don't really know. It's just like you have to be thinking and running and tackling and getting up and working hard. And out. it's just it's intense. And then after the pit, after the match, everyone goes off and like hangs out and, you know, it socializes together. And I think that that combination of intensity on the pitch and then kind of social community off the pitch is what attracted me to it. I could definitely see that attraction. That's a, that, that is that's really cool. So, as you said, rug, rugby is a very physically demanding activity, but so is doing field work in tropical forests. So has rugby helped to prepare you for field work or vice versa? Hmm. I think probably my childhood living in the woods in, you know, in Vermont, in small town Vermont, exploring probably helped me get into a field of biology and also feel really comfortable, you know, tackling and playing rugby and getting dirty. And so I think it all probably goes hand in hand. I'm not sure where whether I would say one 
help the other. Although certainly fieldwork on like walking around on tricky karst is very good for all of, for building up a lot of these leg muscles <laughs> that are also very useful for uh, cutting in rugby. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your your childhood. You're from Vermont. You said you grew up kind of being outdoors a lot in the woods. What was that like? What are some of the the, the memories that stick out when you think about that time in your life? Yeah, so I grew up um, first in a really tiny town in Vermont that had about 250 people in it, I think. And then the house I lived in there actually was off the grid and ended up burning down. So we had to move. Um, that was, you know, a traumatic, like early part of my life. But we ended up moving eventually to another town that had about 900 people in it. So slightly larger. But in both places, you know, I, we lived on a lot of land and I had lots of forests to explore and parents who loved identifying plants and looking at birds and, you know, growing food in the garden. So I definitely spent a lot of my childhood being outside or playing in the stream on our property. And I think that that all helped me or instilled this love of the environment and of the natural world in me. Yeah, I mean, I think I spent a lot of hours on our property just like going and exploring and building forts and making dams and yeah, checking things out. I, I love that sense of exploration and curiosity. And that that my parents definitely instilled that sense of curiosity in me. And I think that has led all the way through to be, me being a scientist and trying to figure out how everything works and why things work a certain way. So when you went to college, did you expect that you would become a biologist or did you imagine other possible career paths? Well, that, so I graduated high school when I was 16 and I was felt like I was a little wasn't quite ready for college at that time. And so I knew at that point I was interested in biology and my aunt lived in D.C. So I moved down to D.C. and lived with my aunt and uncle and then volunteered at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. And so I spent a year living there, also working at Ben and Jerry's, like a good Vermonter. <laughs> and and uh, when I was there, I was working in the biological diversity of the Guyana's program in the Natural History Museum and got to look at a lot of different plants. And I, so I knew that I wanted to do something kind of in the biology realm. When I went to college at Colgate in upstate New York, I had a brief uh, consideration of doing something in chemistry because I loved my intro chemistry class. But then quickly jumped back to biology once I started taking organic chemistry <laughs> and uh, and realizing that I actually I wanted to be able to see and touch and feel like everything that I was working with. I needed to be more in the field than it seemed like a lot of the chemistry uh, research was. So I think it was probably sometime. Yeah, I, mean, I think I've, I've always kind of always known I wanted to do something in the environment and conservation, but I didn't know exactly what it should be. And so that's why I took time off after college. I took five years off in the end before I went to graduate school. I didn't really know for sure that I wanted to go to graduate school or what it, what I would go for. And I had this thought that I had to be passionate about a very specific thing. I had to love frogs or I had to love, I don't know, like be a bird person or something. And so I, I you know, took this time off. I moved to Guam. I you know, did all this work with brown tree snakes. And I realized at some point along the way that I could be a community ecologist and just figure out how it all fits together. <laughs> I didn't actually have to pick one thing that I liked more than other things. And that was the, I was pretty excited when I figured that out. So I applied to graduate school in community ecology. And yeah, I haven't looked back since. <laughs> I'm Scott Solomon, and you're listening to Wild World. 
In our final segment, I'll ask Haldra what her research in the Mariana Islands is revealing about birds living in other parts of the world and what we can all do to help protect them. I love to travel and experience new places, and I've had the great pleasure of joining several rice-traveling owls trips operated by Lindblad Expeditions. Each of these trips, from the Galapagos Islands to the Belize Barrier Reef, Baja California, and the Upper Amazon River, has been absolutely incredible. Lindblad Expeditions make nature and wildlife accessible to anyone. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls or expeditions.com to learn more and to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Welcome back. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and my guest is Haldra Rogers, an ecologist whose work in the Mariana Islands is revealing the many important roles that birds play in natural ecosystems. So you were talking about the importance of camaraderie in rugby and, and you know, being part of a team. And, you know, just like rugby, science is a team sport. So tell me a little bit about the team of uh, colleagues and collaborators who work with you on the Ecology of Bird Loss Project. I, I hadn't actually made the connection between team sports and the way I do science, but I love to do science as a team. I love people. I love interacting with people. I love the ideas that other people have and like figuring out how you move forward. And that's definitely the way I, I do science. The kind of team that I've put together uh, or the, the team that has developed, I guess, over the years for the, the Ecology of Bird Loss Project, you know, started first with my two PhD advisors at University of Washington. So Josh Cheeksbury and Yannicka Hillary Slambers, who were really supportive and encouraging and kind of let me take this idea, which nobody had really dug into at all and like pursue it for my PhD. And it was great to have them as part of it early on. Since then, uh, you know, we've had a lot of students and postdocs that have worked on the project and other collaborators. I think the thing that I most find most rewarding is the kind of amount of training that we've been able to do and, and people who have been involved from the Marianas. We recently have had one PhD student, Anne-Marie Gowell, who graduated, who is uh, Chukis, and, uh, which is in one of the Micronesian Islands, and she grew up on Guam. And uh, now has a great Smith Fellowship working on land snails of Gu on Guam for her postdoc. And then also Christiana Kanata, who is a, had a master, got a master's degree, and she's Chamorro, is from Guam and is back there now in environmental consulting. And we've also trained a lot of high school students, undergraduate students, postgraduate students, and I now have a postdoc who's Chukis uh, and Yapis um, from Micronesia and is doing work on pollination biology on the project. So I think that the it's been I've learned so much by having a team of people working on this that have such a long lived history and a family knowledge and kind of connection to the islands. So I think that's the the part that I'm kind of most excited about. So how has the loss of birds impacted the people of Guam? I mean, I think that people recognize that there has been a kind of major loss of their like cultural heritage with losing birds. Like the you know the older people will talk about these memories of 
birds, you know, around their house or the chicharica or, you know, or even, you know, eating birds. I talked to this one older gentleman at a senior citizen center and we asked him what his favorite bird was. And he said, he's like, it was the toto because it was delicious. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and I think that like all of that is really important culturally is having this connection to, to birds for all of the things they provide, you know, the having that other entity in the in the jungle with you or having food or you know song all of those things and i think that you know, people recognize that that has been lost and i think there's a lot of that that's intangible though because you do still see some birds around and and when you especially uh, if you didn't grow up with birds you don't really know as much what you've lost and so there's been recently a lot more education and outreach uh, through things like painting murals of the coco the guam rail or having uh, there's a race now uh, every year uh, um, a marathon i think that's the coco marathon which um, is to let people know about this bird so it's been the more awareness and outreach people recognize that learn about the birds even if they never were able to grow up hearing them or seeing them Hmm. So what has your work in Guam taught you about the importance of birds in other parts of the world? I think especially from a seed dispersal perspective, we have recognized the importance of birds more broadly in a way that it would have been difficult to raise the to recognize that I think without such an extreme example. Cuz like like I said with dispersal, you know, every tree produces thousands to millions of seeds and you know, for the population to stay stable, it only needs to you know produce a, have, grow one other adult for every tree, and so it doesn't actually need very many of the seeds to be successful. There seems one tree actually to be successful. So it's hard to imagine that dispersal is going to be that critical of a process because there's just so many seeds. Like by chance, something's going to get there and grow right. But when you see such an extreme example like Guam and recognize that without dispersal, then you know, you're like those seedlings don't grow. Those seeds don't get to the right places and the seedlings don't grow, that it actually is a critical process. And that has led us to think a lot more about dispersal in terms of range shifts for plants with climate change. So we know with climate change, the temperature uh, is going to get warmer further north. So the uh, plants are likely going to have to, going to shift their ranges further north or upwards on mountain slopes. And so and for something that doesn't have a very large range, it's going to have to track that temperature change. It's going to have to be able to move fast enough to keep up with this temperature change and so that it doesn't, so that it's able to persist, its population is able to persist. Uh, but for many of the plant species in the world, we have no idea what disperses it. And we don't know whether it can actually get to the areas that it's going to need to get to in order to persist. And I think the work in Guam has made me think more carefully about all the different benefits of dispersal and understanding which plants might be more dispersal might be more important for and which plants might it might be less important for so that now I'm starting a new project thinking about seed dispersal in the Appalachian forest near where I live now in Virginia and uh, trying to understand whether the dispersers that we have left here are enough to be able to help those plants track the changing climate so I, th- I think a lot of that com- came from thinking very carefully about it in, in the Marianas and then applying that on a broader scale. So other than climate change and invasive snakes, what other types of threats are birds facing worldwide? 
Some of the really common threats to birds um, are both uh, window strikes and feral cats are two uh, major killers of birds, especially during migration. There are some programs now that can alert you to when the migra- migratory birds are coming through a particular city so that people turn their lights off. And that helps avoid a lot of the window strikes that that happen during the migratory period. And then feral cats are a major killer, especially a problem on islands where you have birds that are completely naive to predators and feral cats around that eat a lot of birds. And so um, I think both of those are, are major problems. And I've seen some studies recently that have suggested that birds really are declining in many places, right? I mean, birds as a group seem to not be doing so well. There's a study that came out a few years ago that showed that there are 3 billion fewer breeding birds in the U.S. now than 50 years ago. And it's not just that some of the rare species are declining or that we're having more species that become endangered or even extinct, but there's many common species that are declining. And so if you imagine you have half the number of wood thrush out there, which are likely a pretty important disperser, then they're going to be able to move half as many seeds. And even so even though they're not necessarily endangered at this point, their ecological function is much reduced as you lose as you have far fewer of the birds. So this is something we really need to be thinking about in the U.S. and at a global scale. So what can listeners do wherever they happen to live to help protect the wild birds in their area? So, I mean, one thing is just keeping your cats inside and uh, making sure that they are not out there catching the birds. It's good for you as well if you're a bird watcher because you'll have more birds in your yard. And then also, if you have big windows, you can put certain stickers or types of window coverings you can put on it so that birds can see them and they're less likely to hit them. And even more so, if you live in a, if you work in an office building or live in a big apartment building or something where there are lots of windows, you can figure out when the migratory birds are coming through. I think Audubon Society has a kind of lights out program uh, and then encourage everyone in that building to make sure those lights get turned off during migratory bird season in your particular, during bird migration in your particular uh, city. Awesome. What do you think the future holds for Guam's forests? Ah, good question. Yeah, I think so thinking about Guam, like, so one of the things that I think is really exciting about thinking about bringing birds back on Guam is making sure it's a community endeavor. And I think there are lots of people who are excited to to try to, you know, work on restoring birds and work on restoring the forest and work on kind of restoring these these healthy ecosystems. So one of the things that we're working on is having a project, a community engaged project for forest restoration that I'm hoping someday down the road becomes also a project where we can start reintroducing birds and people can start seeing them in their own yards. But yeah, I think the the solution really needs to be one that is driven by the community and there's a lot of excitement around that. Yeah. And uh, maybe also kind of along the same lines in New Zealand leads the way in thinking about invasive control, invasive species control and bird and other native species recovery. And that they're a model for how to do it um, because I think they have all of these large fenced areas where they have the, the community maintains and they you know have trapped all of the the invasive predators out of these areas and reintroduce birds and it's really this like pride of each community that keeps their own natural area uh, restored and so I think something like that is a vision that we could take on in Guam and potentially in 10 or 20 years have a similar system where people have these kind of thriving natural areas around their houses or their in their villages 
So is it your dream to be able to someday visit Guam and see an intact community of birds and an intact forest? Yes, I think with people hiking around through it and you know, potentially even someday having enough birds that they can hunt them again and eat them. You know, I think something like that where it's just a coming back to a place where people can live with all of the native species that were there uh, previously. And not having to walk around with a stick to knock down all the spider webs. <laughs> yes, and not to, exactly, not having to knock down the spider webs. <laughs> well, Haldra Rogers, thanks so much for joining us on Wild World and telling us about the work that you're doing in Guam and the Mariana Islands. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. It's been really fun. That's it for this episode. You can learn more about Haldra Rogers and her research on her website, haldra.org. We'll have a link in the show notes. We'll also have some photos and videos from her fieldwork in the Mariana Islands on our website, wildworldshow.com. To learn more about Guam and the Mariana Islands, visit guampedia.com. You can find information about its natural and human history, and you can hear recordings of the calls of Guam's native birds. This episode of Wild World was produced by Three Wire Creative. You can listen to Wild World anywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe to get notifications about new episodes. I'm your host, Scott Solomon. Join me next time as we explore another part of our wild world. Next time on Wild World, we're exploring the final frontier. It's time to strap in, count down, and prepare for liftoff as we learn about how the human body responds to the most extreme environments on Earth and beyond.